This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So today, in today's lesson, Jesus offers another parable. This one less a story than a short study of two character types. The first is a religious leader in the community, a Pharisee, someone who presumably has dedicated his life to God and is not shy about saying so, proud of his fasting and tithing and compliance with the external requirements of his faith, the Pharisee thanks God for making him better than everyone else, and in his prayer asks for God's blessing. The second character in the parable is a tax collector, someone whose profession is built upon extortion and hard-heartedness and exploiting others. The tax collector we can see knows that his life is an utter mess, knows that he doesn't deserve a thing from God, and throws himself upon God's mercy. He does not ask for God's blessing so much as he begs. Unlike many of Jesus' parables, the message of this one seems fairly straightforward. Don't be proud and arrogant like the Pharisee, but be humble and contrite like the tax collector. But as we've learned, Jesus' parables are always a bit subtler than the surface suggests. For the danger of reading it as a simple lesson in practicing humility is that we then fall into the trap of a false humility, secretly saying to ourselves something like this, God, we thank you that we are not arrogant like other people, the hypocrites, the overly pious and the self-righteous, we come to church each week, listen attentively to the sermon, have given generously to the church, and we have learned that we should always be humble. You see, the problem with the Pharisee in the parable is not merely that he is proud. The problem is that he is striving to win God's favor through his own merit, convinced that it is his good character that is the key to salvation. 
And we don't escape this predicament just by changing the object of our striving from righteousness to humility. Jesus is not asking us to become more humble so much as he is asking us to stop pretending that we can win his favor through any of our own paltry efforts. Take a look again at the tax collector. He stands far from the holy ground of the temple. He beats his breast and he begs for God's mercy, not because he is trying to be humble, but rather because he is desperate and he knows in his heart that his only chance for redemption is to let go completely of any pretense of earning God's grace. What the parable teaches is that the secret to being a Christian is to set aside the vanity of all human striving as a way to win God's favor and simply accept God's mercy and transforming love as the pure gift it is. C.S. Lewis had a simple way of putting this. He said, God does not love us because we are good. We are good because God loves us. The good news you see is that God comes to those who are broken. He comes to those who seek his mercy. He comes to those who open their hearts and tell him their secrets. It turns out that what God wants from us is not perfection or moral rectitude, but rather honesty and faithfulness. For me, this particular lesson was dramatically driven home just before my ordination to the priesthood. In advance of our big day, all of us who were about to be ordained went off on a retreat together to ready ourselves for becoming priests. As you would expect, there was a lot of excited discussion among us priest wannabes about what it means to wear a collar. At one point, our retreat leader, a former monk, seemed to grow weary of all of our sanctimonious church talk. A hush came over the room. He looked at us directly in the eyes and offered this arresting advice. Whatever you do as a priest, he said, do not succumb to the temptation to think that you are holier than anyone else. There are many possible reasons why God called you to ordained life, but among them is that he may be trying to save you from yourself. For example, example, our leader continued, perhaps God knows that you would not read the Bible regularly if you weren't required to preach and teach it every week. Perhaps God knows that you wouldn't pray regularly if you weren't responsible for praying for the welfare of others. Perhaps God knows that you would likely fall out of relationship with Jesus if the heart of your vocation were not to baptize folks into the life of Christ, feed him his body and feed them his body and blood, and bury them into his risen life. Perhaps, our monk leader concluded, you are called to be a priest not because you are holier than anyone else, but because you are less so. And living faithfully into the priesthood may be your only chance for salvation. It was a humbling moment. 
<laughs> there was a time, of course, in the history of the faith when the call to religious orders was regarded as somehow a higher calling than other vocations. One of the powerful insights of the Reformation was to correct this. Luther and the other reformers insisted that all of life's work, not just the work of priests, bishops, and deacons, is the work of God. Luther loved to say that the maid sweeping the steps of the cathedral does a work as pleasing to God as the monk at prayers. Each one of us is called by God to live out God's purposes in the work we do, whether it is the work of a carpenter, an engineer, a banker, a teacher, a nurse, a mom caring for her children, a lawyer, or a maid. All work is a holy thing if it is cultivated and directed in ways that faithfully express God's caring purposes for the world and humanity. This theology of work is one example of how Luther sought to burst the bubble of ecclesiastical sanctimony to restore a measure of humility to the faith. He tried to do the same thing, of course, in his reforms to worship, insisting upon the priesthood of all believers in using the vernacular language in church and having the congregation participate more fully in song and otherwise. Many of these reforms had the effect of putting the faith back in the hands of the humble folk rather than being the exclusive province of an increasingly arrogant and power-hungry clergy. Even so, even in good Lutheran churches like this, I do sometimes wonder if we still inadvertently allow our beautiful liturgy and music and windows and other church rituals get in the way of a more authentic encounter with God. As the writer Frederick Beekner, who just passed away recently, once observed, if you want to see what a more honest approach to relating to God looks like, go to an AA meeting. The one simple and unalterable practice at such meetings is that if you want to speak, you first must, must acknowledge that you are an alcoholic who cannot help himself or herself. When someone gets up and says, hi, my name is Bob and I am an alcoholic, all conceit and pretense in the room evaporates. And when all those gathered together respond, hi, Bob, they are standing in solidarity with Bob's brokenness, welcoming him to a community of those struggling for wholeness from a higher power. As Beekner puts it in his little book, Telling Secrets, quote, while I do not believe that groups such as Alcoholics Anonymous are perfect any more than anything human is perfect, I do believe that what goes on in them is far closer to what Christ meant his church to be and what it originally was than much of what goes on in most churches I know. Something to think about. Whatever you may think of that, I am convinced that sanctimony and arrogance is one of modern America's most pernicious cultural problems. 
folks on both the right and the left of the political spectrum, and folks both in extreme evangelical churches and in extreme progressive churches, all seem to be so convinced that they have the truth on their side that they have stopped listening to one another, much less to God. We, all of us, somehow need to get ourselves back into the posture of the tax collector in today's parable, recognizing our collective brokenness and desperation, admitting we don't know the answers, and asking instead for God's guidance and his mercy. One ancient prayer that I often use to help me remember this is a variation on the classic Jesus prayer. It goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved. <laughs>